I would like to develop this talk on the historic spread of the doctrines of grace by thinking about the problems of history, and particularly the problems of the history of our day, and then the solution of those problems. I believe the solution of the basic problems of history of our day, of any other day, is the matter of the opening of the Word of God. I believe the, the Bible is a closed book to this generation. And I know that everybody has one, they're never home, you can buy them very cheaply, they're never church, but still they're a closed book. And I believe the Bible will remain a closed book until the gospel is open under this generation. And I believe that Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, is simply another way of looking at the gospel. I was down in Kentucky and one of my dear friends from over in Grand Rapids, a Hollander, Dutch, heard me say in a Bible conference down at Brother Mayhem's church that I was going to tell you, brethren, that I thought it was a good idea if we reduced the five points of Calvinism to three. And it scared him. He said, now, we've been trying so long to get him to adopt all five. Now you're talking about cutting them back to three. But I believe that all five of them can be expressed in, in three. And number one, who is God? The answer of Calvinism is quite clear, quite biblical, quite to the point. God is God. He's not trying to be God, wishing he were God. You know, Arminianism has a, a bail, B-A-A-L, bail. Uh, back when they worshipped nature, they worshipped the planets, and they had the sun and the moon as a part of those planets. And they believed all those planets were gods, but they believed there's one supreme Lord, the issue in, that was the bail. And the bail of this generation is the free will of man. Now, what do you mean? I believe that they believe that God sits on the throne, but that his throne is circumscribed and limited by the will of man. And he wants to do it, can't do it, because we won't let him. They believe that God is limited, that man might be free. And so, beloved, I don't believe folks who have a Bible to find out who God is. Our nation has its problems, and we have a wonderful nation, but this nation cannot exist without what we call the Puritan ethos. And the Puritan ethos isn't a thing of the wide world, but the leavening of the culture, the social order, by the word of God. 
And the word of God will not shed its light upon this generation till it be open to this generation. And beloved, relieving the minds of men of the difficulties which science presents is not the answer. But the relieving of the minds of men of the problem which the gospel presents. Who is God? The second great question is what is man? And the answer of Calvinism is quite direct, quite simple, quite biblical. Man was created in the image of God and given dominion over all the visible creation, the highest of God's creation, and the image of God that was imprinted upon his soul has not been eradicated, but has been totally effaced that man is fallen, totally fallen. That he's not merely sick, he's undone. He's not merely injured, he's dead. And certainly we do not pass on beyond the truth into that which is not truth but hyper-Calvinism. Man is totally dead, but he's not dead in every sense of the word. He isn't dead physically. He's not dead intellectually. He's not even dead morally so far as what knowing what right and wrong is. But he's dead spiritually in that he can discern more glory in a one dollar bill than he can in the heart of God exposed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's dead spiritually, religiously dead. They don't know that. They did. They quit trying to be saved by works and they cast themselves on blood redemption and sovereign grace. And beloved, the third greatest question that confront the mind of man as we think of time and of eternity and the revelation of God is, what is salvation? And the answer of Calvinism is quite direct, quite to the point. Salvation is mercy. Grace, the grace of a throne. But we know the gospel, that all of this grace is in the hands of the nail-scarred hands of a man, because God became man in the, mis- in the mysterious marvel that took place in the womb of the virgin that God entered this world as you and I entered this world born the woman that when God became man in Jesus Christ he did not cease to be God but having become man he shall never cease to be man We ought to scare the living daylights out of this generation because there's nothing standing between them and eternal ruin. But praise mercy! Their destiny is not in their hands. It's in the hands of God. He can do with them as he will. For he concluded them all in sin. But at the same time, as we scare them, let us also comfort them and tell them that they must come to a throne to receive grace. That come boldly to that throne, because there sitteth one upon that throne that can be moved to the feeling of our infirmities, for he was tempted in all points like as we. And so it's mercy, but mercy in the hands of a man. 
He's also God, and hence he'll make no mistake. But he's man, and hence we can, he can be in a bond of sympathy with poor suffering humanity. And so, beloved, I know we have a problem. And the solution of these problems is found in the revelation of the word of God to this generation. And the key that will unlock the scripture is the testimony of Jesus, the gospel. And beloved, no man can lay hold of the gospel if he's not willing to accept who God is and what man is and what salvation is. He'll twist it, he'll distort it, he will not receive it unless he'll receive the knowledge of God. Unless he, unlike the Pharisees of old that received not the baptism of John because they rejected the testimony of God against themselves, unless they are received the testimony of God against themselves, that they're dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And unless they are received the message that salvation is in grace, to cast themselves wholly, not on their resolutions, not on their indoctrination, not on their church membership. There's place for all of that. Not on the blessed ordinances of the church, but cast themselves entirely in the hands of grace. The Bible remain head to this generation. And so, beloved, what is the historic spread of Calvinism? It's just opening the Bible. And what opens the Bible? The gospel. A fellow over in Little Rock told me, he said, I know our preacher isn't preaching the doctrines of grace, but he is preaching the gospel. Now, I know we don't have to spell out the tulip every time we come to the Pope. But, beloved, you cannot. The gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And no man can expound the person and the work of Jesus Christ except in the light of the wreck and the ruin of man and sin. Except in the light of the eternal purposes of God. He cannot expound the person and the work of Jesus Christ except on the basis of the fact that salvation is in the grace of God. We're in a mess. We're in a mess. And it's stinking worse all the time. And we'll get worse. And I know we have this answer and that answer, but what, the, uh, to my way of thinking, the answer is we need a reformation. We need a great awakening. We know the doctrines of grace historically were spread by the apostles, the apostolic revival. The doctrines of grace were spread historically by the Reformation, Lothar and Calvin. The doctrines of grace were spread historically by the Great Awakening and the Whitefield, Edwards, Brainer. And so we need another Reformation. We need another Great Awakening. You say, what happened during the preaching of Calvin and Luther? The Bible became known. 
what happened during the Reformation, the Bible became known. What happened during the Great Awakening, the Bible became known. You see, what was there in Luther and Calvin that revealed the, revealed the Bible, the Gospel? What was there in the Great Awakening that revealed the Bible, the Gospel? And unless the Gospel become manifest to this generation, Beloved, the darkness of the night will deepen until it will be true, as Kipling says in his poem, when he speaks of lesser breeds without the law, the whole shall fall into heathen darkness. And so the gospel needs to be manifest to this day. Olaf Barnard. One time was asked a question about one of these divine healers. He says, you think he's really healing those people? He said, I don't know a thing about that. Because said, I know one thing, he's not preaching the gospel. That's all I'm interested in, is he preaching the gospel. Now, beloved, as uh, we have time, I want to uh, think about... Um, three things that we need in our day and to try to show you that if we have the solution to those things it will be in the opening of the word of God to this generation and here in the first chapter of the book of Romans we read concerning the withdrawal of restraining grace we read down in verse 24 of the first chapter wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness of the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator is blessed forever Paul is saying that when the Romans with their natural light having the knowledge of God were not thankful for this knowledge of God not only were not thankful for this knowledge of God, they refused to glorify God. And not only refused to glorify God, they corrupted his glory into images. And because they did this, God judged them in kind. They took away the glory of God with their idolatry. And so God took away their dignity and self-respect as human beings, and they fell off into sexual perversion. We know also that in the second epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, he speaks of the withdrawal of restraining grace. Now, whatever that means when he says the spirit of antinomianism doth already work and will work uh, until he that preventeth or letteth will prevent until he be taken out of the way. Now, whatever that means, we know that it refers to what the Calvinist calls restraining grace. We know that a common grace can be looked at from different angles. We can speak of it as the uncovenated mercies of God not being a part of the eternal covenant of salvation. We can speak of it as temporal mercy being mercy for time and not for eternity. We can speak of it as common mercy given to man in his generality and not to particular distinguishing individuals. 
Uh, we could speak of the common grace of God as restraining grace because if man be not restrained in his lust, no other common mercy would be mercy indeed. And so we can see that not only was it true that in the days of the apostles restraining grace was removed from the Greco-Roman world, but we can also see in the words of the prophet that restraining grace will be removed from the world in the latter days and there is evidence that such restraining grace is taking its departure in our day and generation. And we know that in the Roman epistle, that restraining grace used means. And as we can see, those means losing their effectiveness in our day and generation we can see the lust and the corruption of man breaking forth in the world. And what are the means which God in his restraining grace used as we can see them in the Roman epistle? And are those means being withdrawn or losing their effectiveness in our day? And what can we do to open the Bible to this generation to restore the effectiveness of those means if it so please God in our day? Now, beloved, the means of God in his restraining grace and the restraining of the natural man in his love of sin is, first of all, the natural knowledge of God. When these people send away the natural respect they ought to have for God, when these men send away the natural fear of God, they were let loose in the love of sin. And the Roman world was filled with corruption and violence. And in our day, as man has cast aside the God who hath revealed himself and created a man, created a God out of his own imagination, and that liberal God in our day and generation, does not restrain the natural man in his love of sin. I know that hyper-Calvinism is antinomian, but Arminianism is antinomian too. I had a man who came to our church from another faith, Pentecostal group, and, and I'm not throwing off from that group. It's true of so many in our day. And um, he told me that he had attended a number of trials of ministers that had been accused of adultery. And he said those men had said in their defense, I told the other person, if you're as tempted as I am, why don't we just go ahead and ask God to forgive? In other words, if the grace of God is like a water faucet, the tap is in our hand, we can turn it on or turn it off at our election. Why not just sin, say a little prayer, and go back and sin again? Arminianism is antinomianism. It destroys the fear of God. And to beloved, if restraining grace renew the means by which men are restrained in our day, then the knowledge of God might be revived in our day. It can only be done in the revelation of the scriptures and the scriptures cannot be opened without the revelation of the gospel that's the key that unlocks the scriptures you say pastor do you believe the gospel is also the key of the kingdom yes I believe the gospel preached in power 
either looses a man from his sins or binds him in his sins. The key of the kingdom is not sacerdotal authority, it's preaching power in a local congregation or in a minister, in a, in a witness. In the grace of the Holy Ghost. And so if the fear of God be restored to this generation, it must be in return of Whitefield, of Edwards, of Calvin, of Augustine, of Paul, the apostolic doctrine, which just means the gospel. Now, beloved, here in the first chapter of Romans, the second means that restraining grace uses to restrain the natural man is found in verse uh, 31. When these people were let loose to their lust, it says they became without understanding covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable and merciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I want to focus upon the words without natural affection. Man's love of wife and of child. Man's love of son and of daughter, man's love of mother and of father, man's love of brother and of sister, man's love of neighbor and of friend, those natural affections restrain him in his love of sin. Now, all natural affection is rooted and grounded in the home. Certainly love of wife and child, or love of mother, father, brother, sister, is rooted and grounded in the home, but love of neighbor also is rooted and grounded in the home. And outside of that affection for our fellows that comes out of the home, there is not the love of friend true also. And so the home is a part of the restraining grace of God that is used of him to restrain the natural man. You say, how can the opening of the Bible restore the home uh, in our day? Well, the home must not simply be based upon a contract between man and woman, though that contract be distinct from all other contracts because it's a contract that cannot be entered except by special license of government and cannot be broken by mutual consent, can be broken only by death or by judicial decree. The home must have a certain sanctification. The home must have a certain uh, something from God. The sanctity of the home must be established. And hence the Bible must be opened unto our generation. The sanctity of the home cannot be found in priestly authority, nor in churchly authority, nor in traditional authority. It must be found in the mind of God as a blessed institution that came down to us from the garden which man has not lost in the fall and can be a bit of Eden upon this earth or can become a place of briars and the thorns cursed uh, if sin enters in. And so the sanctity of the home can only be established not by establishing the mind of priest or of church or of tradition. It can only be established in the mind of God. And God's mind cannot be known except as the Bible is known to this generation. 
And the Bible cannot be known if the gospel is not known. Beloved, what can you make out of the scriptures without the gospel? What can you make out of those Jews down in Egypt putting blood on the lintels and the side posts of the doors of their house? What can you make out of all the blood that Jews shed upon their altar for many, many years? The gospel, the knowledge of God and of man and of salvation is the key that unlocks the scripture. Now, another means that's used of God in restraining grace is referred to by Paul in the second chapter of his epistle to the Romans and in uh, verse 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And so, beloved, the third means that God uses to restrain the natural man is the natural conscience. He says, you can say several things about the natural conscience. Number one, the conscience of the natural man has no merit, but it has great value. It has no merit because it's based upon the love of self. When he sees himself in a good moral light, he feels good. When he sees himself in a bad moral light, he feels bad because he delights in himself. And so it has no merit. It's pure selfishness, but it has a great value in the restraint of the natural man. The second thing that you can say about the conscience is that man will always be a self-conscious creature. It's a part of our creation. The animal is conscious, but not self-conscious. It is though we were two. We're down here in the arena of action. We're also sitting here upon the tribunal of judgment. And eternally, we're conscious of ourselves. How am I doing? And there is a writing of the law, as the apostle says here, upon the conscience, wherein we make this judgment. That cannot be erased. You say, then, Pastor, how can the effectiveness of the conscience, as it restrains the natural man, be destroyed? Well, man is not only a self-conscious creature, he is also a social creature. He's geared together with his fellows in this world. He does not think too far beyond the culture of which he's a part. I call myself a Calvinist, and yet we know that John Calvin, in some things, was a product of his times. You and I may think that we think totally apart from our generation, but man as a cultural creature, a social creature, does not think too far beyond the culture of his generation. And so when others are doing it and not feeling badly, why should we feel badly? He's still conscious, and the law is still there saying adultery is wrong, that lying is wrong, that his irreligion is wrong. The dishonoring father and mother is wrong. Those things are there. He cannot erase them. He knows they're there. I believe that the weight of preaching is not to make a man know something he never heard of, but make a man know what he already knows. To break through this culture by the power of God to make a man know what he already knows. He could know that law. He would know he is a sinner. And he really knows he's a sinner. There's not one door open. 
And so, beloved, our problem is this culture. So far as the individual is concerned, we trust by the power of God that he may be called out of this darkness into this light. And no man can be saved in this culture. Like Abraham, who came out of Ur the Chaldees, he must come out of this world. He's found without the city. But what shall we do with the culture itself? How can we renew the the moral tone of this culture itself so that natural men are restrained in the mercy? Or there needs to be a great awakening of the word of God in our day. And that's not going to come by printing more Bibles. They pour out of the printing press. That's not come by more readable translation. The key that unlocks the scripture is not Greek and Hebrew. It is not modern English. The key that unlocks the scripture is the gospel. And so unless the gospel can be revived in this day, the Bible will not leaven this culture. And hence their conscience is not going to restrain them as long as other people are doing it and not being restrained. Now, beloved, the fourth method that God uses to restrain the natural man is found in the 13th chapter of this epistle to the Romans, where Paul says in the opening verse, let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God, and whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt praise the saint. In other words, beloved, if natural men are going to be restrained in our day, we need the terror which human government has to offer. There are those who are not going to be restrained by the fear of God. There are those that are not going to be restrained by the love of mother, father. They probably don't have the love of mother, father. There are those that are not going to be restrained by the conscience. They must be restrained by the terror of human government. And we know the terror of human government is the sword right of kings which means the power to inflict capital punishment. But beloved, capital punishment alone will not restrain sinners. Hitler had much of capital punishment, but it had no real restraining power upon wickedness. The communists exercised much of capital punishment, but it has no real restraining power upon sin. It is not the death penalty. It's the death penalty in the context of judgment. It's the death penalty in the context of law. Condemnation. I don't believe that most men are afraid of death. It's it's in the context of judgment. And so, beloved, this leads me to the second division of this talk. And that is, in this day, we not only need a revival that will renew restraining grace. But we need a revival of the law. Unless the law 
is revived in the nation. It will not be revived in Washington. And unless the law is revived in the churches, it will not be revived in the nation. Therefore, there must be a revival of the law in our day and generation. Now, I would like to give you two or three thoughts upon that matter. Beloved, I believe if you and I are going to be used of God to get the gospel across, you and I need to be in the grip of the law. I think, in addition to being professional witnesses as preachers, in addition to being dutiful witnesses as individual Christians, there ought to be a kind of compulsion, a kind of constraint, something that drives us to witness. What is it? Knowing therefore the terrors of the Lord, we persuade men. You say, what are the terrors of the, lo- of the Lord? And they're legal. Not capricious nor arbitrary, the legal. You and I need to be in the grip of the immutability of the divine law. That means the law of God not only has not changed and will not change, is not subject to change. There has been a change in the letter of the law, even the moral code, the Ten Commandments, but there's been no change in the intent in the principle, in the spirit of the divine law. And though heaven and earth pass away, there will never be any change in that law. You say, Pastor, what would give me the grip so that I would know that heaven and earth may pass away, but that law is not going to change in one iota? Beloved, If that law is not immutable in its basic intent, God Almighty himself is not immutable. Because that law is a reflection of the holy character of God. God doesn't have to be merciful, but he has to be holy. Some say that Calvary is a correction, a repudiation of Sinai. It isn't so. The law of God stands in greater majesty at Calvary than it does at Sinai. Beloved, the second reason why that we ought to be in the grip of this idea that the law of God is immutable. I know there's truth and dispensationalism, but we have to be awful careful. There has been a change in what the Calvinist calls the administration of the covenant or the dispensing of the covenant. I think basically there's been but two economies, two household laws. The former times and the last days with the first coming of Christ being the hinge of the ages. But though there's been a difference in administration, a difference in dispensation, a difference in economy, both of grace and of law, 
There's been no change in the substance of the way of salvation or in the substance of the law. And there never will be a change in the substance of salvation because there can be no change in the substance of the law. Beloved, the second reason why I'm in the grip of the immutability of the divine law, if the law of God is not in full force and effect today, there's no such thing as sin. Because sin is defined as the transgression of the law. And the Hebrew concept of sin was to miss the mark. And you can't miss a mark when there is no mark. And so in our day you have situation ethics, you have unfortunate circumstances, you have those who are mentally sick, you have those who are socially unfit, but you don't have sinners. You have no sinners until you have the law. Beloved, the third reason why then I know the law of God's in full force and effect today is because if you have no law, you have no guilt. Because the apostle goes all the way back to the days of Adam and said, where there is no law, sin is not imputed. Romans 5.13. You can't charge a man with speeding if there is no speed limit. You cannot charge a man with, 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 with sin if there is no law. And so today you have guilt complexes. But you don't have guilt. A man in love asked me if I'd go a little off and visit with his, his wife. She's in psychiatric care. And he said, uh, she'll call. I'll, I'll be sure that that, uh, it'd be, that her mind is clear up enough so she passed up and preached and talked to him. And so I said, well, you let me know and I will go. And so I went over there and talked to the lady. And there's a young lady there in the psychiatric ward, well-dressed. I could tell she was wealthy. And by speech I knew that she was college trained. And she said, I know my problem. said, I have a guilt complex. And I thought to myself, if you don't have any guilt complex, you're just guilty. And they'd been treating it. They'd been digging into her past to try to help her to find out why she has this hang-up, this guilt complex. They'd been trying to straighten out her thinking. And they're just swapping one kind of mental sickness for another. Beloved, there's only one psychology for that situation, and that's the gospel of Christ. But if we, if we don't have the law, you're going to have this use of love as the standard of, of conduct. And if you're unselfish in your love, you're not injuring anybody. Go ahead, you know. And you don't have guilty people if you don't have the law. Now, beloved, that isn't the main reason why I believe in the immutability of the divine law. You say, Pastor, those things are strong. You say that the law is immutable because it's a reflection of the holy character of God, and that's immutable. You say, if the law is not in full force and effect today, there is no sin. You say, if the law is not in full force and effect today, there's no guilt. There is no guilt. Do you have a reason stronger than that? Beloved, you don't have a doctrine of the cross if you don't have the immutability of the law. 
Why did Jesus have to die? You know, in coming into Calvinism, the two or three things we ought to always remember. Number one is certainty does not rule out necessity. Just because anything is certain to occur is no sign it isn't necessary that it occur. Therefore, Paul the missionary said concerning his missionary endeavors, These things I endure for the elect's sake, that they might also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The elect of God are certain to come to Christ, but it's absolutely necessary they come to Christ. I don't know who the elect are, and so I tell all men that it's necessary to come to Christ. And when they name the name of Jesus Christ, I don't know whether they're saved or just illuminated, just awakened. And so I plead with them to cleave unto the Lord with purpose of heart, and he that endureth unto the end shall be saved. Beloved, if certainty rules out necessity, let's hear you explain the death of Christ. On his way to Jerusalem, he can say this thing is foreordained and predestinated to God, and so why go to the trouble? Beloved, the second thing to remember is this. They speak of God not having free will. He can't do what he wants to do because his will is circumscribed and limited by the free will of man. That isn't so, and it hasn't been so since Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary. There's never been one limitation upon the free will of God. You and I don't have free will. If we had free will, we'd all be rich. If we had free will, we'd never be sick another day. If we'd have free will, we wouldn't be getting any older. If we'd have free will, we wouldn't die. But God has the power and God has the right to do what he wants to do. The only limitation that's ever been on the free will of God was taken care of at the cross of Calvary. He cannot be merciful to him who believeth apart from the death of Christ. Therefore he set forth Jesus as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth among Jesus. Therefore Christ from the, from the cross ascended to the throne. One of the great mysteries of the Bible is, when did the kingdom begin? In a sense, it was manifest when Christ was upon earth because the kingdom was here in power. In a sense, it came when he came in power upon the day of Pentecost. In a sense, it shall be, as Edward speaks at the times of the latter-day glory, when the earth should be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But in the strictest sense of the word, the kingdom began when Jesus died upon the cross of Calvary and his sacrifice was accepted to the right hand of God. And as he sat down there and the fact was signified upon earth when the Spirit descended with power. And so, beloved, how do I know that the law of God is not going to be changed, that every transgression and disobedience shall receive a just recompense of reward, that not one jot nor tittle of the law shall fail. Beloved, if that isn't so, look once more at the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the fifth reason why that I know the law of God is immutable is because, beloved, if we have no law, 
We have no gospel. The law of God, the, the gospel of Christ, is of meaning only in the context of the immutable, rigorous law of God. The second thing, I know we could spend this entire time, I believe it was about 2.15 when I started, so I'll quit at 3.15. We could spend this entire time um, talking about the, uh, the law. But the second thing, if we're going to be used of God in opening the scriptures and opening the law to this generation, we must know that there's been a change in the letter of the law, even the Ten Commandments. If that isn't so, how can we explain our relationship to the Fourth Commandment? But so far as the intent or the spirit or the principle of the divine law, there has been no change, and there can be no change. Even the laws of the altar. We don't worship at the temple of the tabernacle in the blood of animals, through a ministering priesthood, but in the intent, in the spirit, in the principle contained therein, we keep that as we come to God in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so all the basic principles of the law are still stand. You know, there's some of those commandments that so far as the letter's concerned, I'd have no trouble keeping them. One of those commandments says, Thou shalt not plow an ox and an ass together. So far as the letter's concerned, I'd have no difficulty. But when you come to the intent, saying don't do that which is contrary to nature, be perfectly in harmony with nature as God ordained it, you see difficulty. On the other hand, there's some of those commandments, if you try to keep them according to the letter, you would run into great difficulty. But if you try to keep them according to the basic intent, certainly we can have a broad harmony uh, with the intent of those commandments. A Seventh-day Adventist came to the door with a book, and I said, let me see your book. He wanted to show it to me. I said, let me look at it. I looked at the book. It's a dictionary. And I said, you believe the smoke of my torment is going up forever and ever. He said, no, I don't believe it. I said, this book says that the, the Sunday observance is the mark of the beast. I said, if that's so, you know what the, the Bible says. If Sunday observance is the mark of the beast, I'm marked with it. And I'm trying to mark other people with it. I said, did your mother build a fire last Saturday when she cooked her meal? He said, she lit the gas. I said, she ought to be stoned today. If you're going to keep it according to the letter, you're running into great difficulty. But if you're going to keep the basic intent, the basic spirit, the basic principle of the law, we can still do so as we observe the apostolic example. And certainly according to the apostolic example, that they worshipped upon the first day of the week. Now, beloved, uh, lastly, I think in our day that we need... Uh, a philosophy of education. We have well-organized schools, and all in all the teachers are well-paid and, and well-trained and have good equipment. And yet the boys and girls don't seem to be learning. 
And you see, why is that? I don't believe you and I can learn anything unless we can properly evaluate what we learn. It has to seem to be important. It has to seem to be useful. Or else it will lie lightly upon our mind. We can learn it, and we don't learn it. We learn it sufficiently to answer the questions the teacher asked, to pass the test and get our diploma. But we don't really learn it unless it seems to be good for something. You walk up to an automotive engineer and say, what is this thing here on the windshield? And he says, that's a mechanical device. It operates on the lever and crank principle. It is activated by motor and the switch there on the dashboard. You say, what you're saying, I follow you, but it doesn't mean anything. What's it good for? He said, it's a windshield wiper. It wipes the rain off the windshield. He said, well, that makes sense. I, I think remember. I think that's also true of the gospel. I believe the boys and girls in the Sunday school can be taught the gospel, and yet they can't be taught the gospel. I believe they can be taught the gospel so we can quiz them and then give us the answer. I believe they could be taught the gospel so they could pass the test. I believe they could be taught the gospel so we could give them some kind of little diploma at the end of the year. But until they get to be sinners, they're not going to learn the gospel because the gospel's only of value to sinners. The three terms in the Bible, back in the Old Testament, say if you really fear God, you're going to be saved. In the Gospel, Jesus says, if you're really lost, he's going to find you. And Paul says, this is a faithful saying that God came to save sinners. Those are really sinners. The Gospel means something. But until that time, you and I are physicians without any patience. Not P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E, but P-A-T-I-E-N-T-S. We're lawyers without any clients. We're teachers without any pupils. They that are sick need a physician. And so, beloved, until folks evaluate things, they are not going to learn them. They can be sharp as bright, just as keen as tax, but they're not going to learn them unless it looks like it's worse something. It's a plain psychology. And what I'm getting at is this. Beloved, the philosophy of education is grounded in the very meaning of life itself. Nothing the children are learning in school if life don't look like they sense to it. And this life is as phony as a seven dollar bill, apart from this Bible. It don't make sense. And so why feel strange if they get to be hippie? Dropouts. Highly educated. Knowing everything, know nothing. Suicide complex. Drive like mad, endangering the lives of others because they've got a death wish on their mind. Life means nothing. What's the meaning of this strange interlude between the eternities? Life has meaning only in the 
hope of a glorious immortality. And that glorious immortality is found in the opening of this book. And this book will not be opened except the gospel be revived. And the gospel will not be revived unless what men have come to call Calvinism has been revived. Because until men can answer the question, who is God? They're not going to see it. He is God, indeed. Until men answer the question, what is man? Until they see the answer that Calvinism gives, they won't see it. Until men have raised the question, what is salvation? Until they see the answer that Calvinism gives, it's grace. Grace, grace. You say you need to believe, that's a grace. You say you need to repent, that's a grace. You say you need a new heart, that's a grace. It's all in the grace of God. But that grace is in the nail-scarred hands of a man. Therefore let us come boldly to that throne to receive mercy in time of need. Thank you. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says 
that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.